0: So, here's another way of looking at Tuesday's election for the 24th Knesset. Three Israeli men in their late 40s and early 50s are stuck. They've already served as senior ministers and feel stuck in their careers. So Ya'el Lapid, Gidon Sar and Bennett, instead of doing what any self-respecting man undergoing a midlife crisis does, and buy a sports car, They founded political parties and are running for prime minister. There's only one problem with that plan, for relieving mid-age angst. Israelis usually prefer their leaders with a bit more life experience on them. Israel has only once in the past elected a 40-something prime minister and that prime minister is today 71 and has no intention of letting anyone repeat his record of becoming prime minister at the young age of 46. What's the most impressive thing you'll achieve in your 40s, Dalia Shendlin?
1: That is an unfair question because my 40s are almost over. But I would just settle for predicting an Israeli election correctly.
0: It's the extra episode of Election Overdose recorded on March 21, 2021. That's right, two days before the election. I'm Anshul Pfeffer and with me is my co-host, Dr. Dalia Shendlin. So, Dalia, Friday was the last day in which, by law, the media was allowed to publish polls. And, of course, we had a load of them. So, what did we learn from this last round of numbers?
1: Well, it was interesting to watch those final polls. There were five that I counted, published in both uh, newspapers and television channels, and one extra one from direct polls. And they showed a continuation of what we began to see last week, which is a very slight rise for Likud, as listeners know. I argue that Likud has been stuck within the 28 to 30 seat range. The current polls had Likud at closer to 30, and one of them even had Likud at 32. So Likud might be doing its traditional 11th hour, several seat climb relative to the final polls uh, the week before elections. Uh, But the most striking thing is that in every single poll, there was a tie for the anti-Netanyahu bloc of parties and the pro-Netanyahu bloc of parties, 60-60. And nothing will shake that 60-60 except for the decisions of those few men. There was not that much variation. I think that we're looking at stability for all the other parties with, you know, Guidon Tsar and Aftali Bennett in the 10-seat range, the Irlapid stuck in that 18-19 seat range. If any of them do significantly better or worse, that would be a surprise. And we have no indication of what the surprise would be. I've seen undecided levels ranging from anywhere from 12% to 6%. My personal prediction is that we're going we might just see a slight rise for the two biggest parties on election day because of that upward trajectory of Likud and the tendency of the undecided in recent years to gravitate towards the big parties.
0: So we'll talk a bit more about personal predictions with our guests in a few minutes. But the other thing that happened on the last weekend of the campaign is of course the party leaders doing their round of interviews on television on Saturday night once Shabbat is over. And I don't think any of them said anything particularly notable, but maybe you picked on something, Dalia, that I didn't. I think what's interesting is what didn't happen, and that's the debates. So why aren't there any debates, Dalia? Well, Why is this, and why is it even, even a surprise that there are no debates here?
1: Well, it's not much of a surprise. We haven't had much of a debate culture in Israel in recent years, and in fact, the few times we had a debate could be seen more as an anomaly. Now, Netanyahu is strongly in the lead as the biggest party. We've talked about that many times. And general campaign wisdom and strategy is that if you're winning, you don't take risks by going to a debate if you don't have to. I think that Netanyahu also knows that if he were to go into a debate with Lapide, he would elevate him to the status of a real challenger. He would make him look prime ministerial. And that's the last thing he wants to do. It's enough for Netanyahu to pick apart Lapide in his speeches, as Angel you know so well, because you wrote just about that. We can talk about some previous debates if we want, but, you know, one of the interesting debates was in 1996 and in 1999. There were moments in each of those debates that stand out in the public memory. In 1996, of course, Netanyahu accusing Paris
0: of being willing to divide Jerusalem. But that wasn't just in the debate. I think the debate with Paris, what was interesting was not so much what was said, but as you said, Perez allowed Netanyahu to look prime ministerial.
1: Absolutely. But the moment everybody remembers is when he looked at Perez and said, you, Mr. Perez, will divide Jerusalem. And Perez looked helpless. But he didn't have a response for that.
0: The Perez, in his mind, I think, and this is from what people have uh, spoke to him afterwards, said, just felt that he was winning by not dignifying Netanyahu by an answer, not understanding how that looked to the viewer,
1: we'll never underestimate how out of touch Paris actually was with the voters. Um, I will also say that in 1999 there was a debate with Benjamin Netanyahu and Itzik Mordechai were the main competitors. Ehud Barak, the main contender, was in the lead and didn't show up, and partly repre- for that reason. Represented by an empty chair. a chair, but that's not what people remembered. What people no. remembered was Itzik Mordechai trapping Netanyahu and trying to accuse him of lying, which. St- stuck out in people's minds. And it's true that Netanyahu then lost the election, but probably not because of the debate. And what we know from most academic literature on campaigns is that debates may be exciting, entertaining. They have these peak moments, but they don't usually change the course of an election.
0: Netanyahu, in his own mind, puts a lot of weight on what happened within that not real debate with Mardukha. He thinks that that caused him a lot of damage. So whether or not that was the real reason, as long as Netanyahu thinks that that was one of the reasons, that is why. We haven't seen Netanyahu debate ever since.
1: What we haven't seen also is a lot of final talk about the issues of this campaign. And that's you know, interesting and sort of frustrating. I mean, there's been all of these final interviews with all the party leaders and they just aren't focusing on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, foreign policy, the judiciary, religion, state, or any of these topical issues, maybe just brief lip service. They're almost all exclusively conversations about coalition negotiations after the elections.
0: And we had on Friday, I'm not sure, I wrote down actually in my notes to call this a noteworthy development, but on second thoughts, it may just be a noteworthy gimmick. On Friday, Naftali Bennett was pursued by... Netanyahu suddenly he woke up in the morning and saw that the street he lives on in Ranana had been almost taken over by Shin Bet and police and security, and he didn't understand what was happening, and he realized that Netanyahu was about to pay him a visit. How did that work out for them?
1: Well, I have no idea. I mean, I don't think it's going to change anything. It seems like some, some sort of a gimmick. But it's interesting because it just kind of adds to a series of strange events like thugs that came to disturb Gideon Saar's rally last week and you know, made Gidon We just have to, to, we just like to clarify
0: victim. for those who haven't been following, Netanyahu did not in the end pay Bennett a visit, but for some reason his entire security detail was camped out on Bennett street, so at least at some point he may have been planning to, or he said to his advance plans that he was going to go and have a mini rally or visit one of Bennett's neighbours. There are different versions of how it was about to happen, but Bennett was so violently against it and, and went immediately online and said that, you know, I'll meet Netanyahu in a studio but this is not a way to do it and so on and so forth, that it didn't happen. But it was a size of really badgering Naftali Bennett and making him lose his cool, which Netanyahu found very easy to do. Well, I mean,
1: that's why I was saying, that's why I connected it to Gidon Sar's rally because it sounds like it made Gidon Sar lose his cool a little bit. He spent a whole week arguing what a victim he was because these thugs showed up at his rally and it's kind of, Netanyahu has these weird gimmicky things that he does. Maybe this one was just a bit of a miscommunication. He planned it and didn't work out but I agree with you that he likes to try to throw his opponents off and and maybe deflect from the attention of the visitors to Netanyahu's house that showed up last night.
0: Which visitors are those?
1: That would be the demonstration that I heard was 20,000 people but you were there so you can tell us what it was like.
0: Well, they didn't actually get all the way to Netanyahu's house. There were a number of massive black barriers standing between them and Anthony Anthony probably wasn't even home at the time, was at his weekend abode in Caesarea, but it was quite an interesting demonstration because it was one of the largest of the series of demonstrations we've seen over the last year at uh, Paris Square, they call it the Balfour Street demonstration, they're not allowed to get to Balfour Street actually, no, not one demonstrator has physically been in, uh, in Balfour Street. But it was also kind of subdued. And I think there was a feeling amongst at least some of the people there, I think there was something, you know, we could talk about it at length and dissect the different groups of amongst the protesters. Perhaps it's not the best time to do that. But a large group seemed sort of almost resigned to Netanyahu winning. Now, they, they'd seen the polls the, the previous evening and that obviously had dampened their enthusiasm. They still came. So one of the signs kind of encapsulated it well. It said it'll th- things will work out in the end, and until that happens, we'll still be here, which was sort of optimistic but long term optimism, yeah. not something which which people are expecting this Tuesday. So it was a much calmer affair, much more subdued, partly because because the police this time acted in a much more I think wise fashion about by keeping their distance and the the roadblocks were left a lot more space for this demo.
1: I mean, my impression of those demonstrations is that these are people who really are desperate to have Netanyahu out of office. And I think that's one of the reasons why we're seeing a particular shift in this election. And that's that the right wing parties, by all polls throughout this time and including the final polls, Parties of the ideological right wing are doing better than they have in any of the three cycles before. By my count, between 76 and 80 Knesset seats will go to ideologically committed right wing parties, which is significantly more than the last three cycles and reflects the fact that some of these people will do anything to get Netanyahu out. Now, how does ideology play against the pro or anti Netanyahu consideration of the voters? For this, we need deeper analysis and deeper polling. And that's why we have the one person who knows more about polls than me. Well, actually, there are a lot of people like that in Israel, but the best of them is here with us today. Professor Tamar Herman is a senior research fellow at the Israel Democracy Institute and the academic director of the Viterbi Family Center for Public Opinion and Policy Research. Since 2010, Professor Herman has headed the team which develops and produces the annual Israeli Democracy Index, which I just want to say is indispensable. And since 2018, she also runs the monthly Israeli Voice Index. Between 1994 and 2018, she produced the monthly Peace Index in collaboration with Professor Ephraim Ya'ar of Tel Aviv University. Professor Herman is a professor of political science at the Open University. She has taught at Hebrew University and Tel Aviv University. She's been a guest lecturer in many places around the world. Tamar, thank you for being here with us. Hi, Ansel. Hi, Dalia. How are you? We're okay, we'll be better when we hear some explanations from you. What can you tell us about this cycle from the perspective of somebody who is doing constant public opinion research about deeper issues? What can you tell us about this cycle that's different from the other ones? Or maybe we should be asking what's the same?
2: In a way, it's uh, the fourth time that Israelis are looking at a very interesting political scene, a two-year-long election campaign. In a way, the fact that it's the fourth one uh, doesn't mean that it's very different than the third one, the second one, perhaps a bit different than the first one, because basically uh, what we see here is uh, a nation divided almost in the middle, But not only politically, as far as uh, these two camps' uh, views of the future, visions of the future, desires uh, regarding the nature of uh, the state of Israel in the future, and so on and so forth. So I would say the immediate uh, party construction might be different, uh, certain parties join forces and split, and so on and so forth, but basically, the picture is quite clear on the one hand we have the so-called liberal camp mostly secular people urban people education uh, above uh, the average income above the average uh, many of them are, are of european descent and on the other hand we have people who emphasize more not necessarily the democratic nature of the state but the jewish nature of the state they would be religious or ultra-orthodox, they live more than a former bloc in the periphery. So uh, in fact, uh, the fact that it is undecided, a fourth effort to make a decision is because uh, this reflects reality. And therefore there is only one way of changing this reality is by changing the electoral system. However, any change in the electoral system will face some strong opposition on these groups that benefit from uh, the present electoral system.
0: One of the main differences that we can see between this fourth election and the previous three is that we have a much larger section of the anti-Netanyahu vote which is made up of right-wing parties. So if in the previous election we only had uh, Lieberman's Israel Beitenu. Uh, being on the right and uh, being anti-Netanyahu. Now we have the New Hope Party of Gidon Sao and we have Naftali Bennett's Yamina saying, well, we're not necessarily going to sit with Netanyahu and we certainly would prefer to replace him. So is there a new creature in this election, the anti-Netanyahu right-winger, or is it just a myth that there is such a thing even?
2: Well, there are some new phenomena, but let's take them one by one, okay? Uh, Naftali Bennett is trying to gain the best of all worlds. Uh, He doesn't want to make any commitment to join this potential opposition or that potential opposition. He doesn't know how many seats he's going to get, and this might make a huge change if he gets uh, 8 or 9 or if he gets uh, 12 or 13 or 14 or who knows. In a situation of uncertainty, uh, his strategy makes perfect sense, right? Because uh, he doesn't know whether the so-called anti-Netanyahu camp is viable or not. It's a big unknown.
0: Perhaps perhaps I should clarify my question. I didn't mean to ask about the leaders of the parties, but of the voters. Is there a new type of Israeli voter who you can call an anti-Netanyahu right-winger? who are going to vote for one of these three parties?
2: The voters of Yamina parties are not necessarily anti-Netanyahu. On the contrary, it will be easier for the leaders of the party to join uh, Netanyahu's party. They are not really deeply uh, critical of him personally or on the policy level. They will feel much more at home in a right-wing coalition, rather in a mixed uh, centre-left, soft-right coalition. And what about Gidon
1: Saar's voters? Where do you think he's getting most of his strength?
2: We know that almost 60% of them voted blue and white in the former elections.
1: What did I say? Thank you for clarifying that, because Angel and I have had a big, epic argument about that this whole time, and I win. I
0: always said there's some of them, and some of them come from other parts.
2: (laughs) Very few of them came from Likud. Of course, uh, by the surveys, uh, we, we don't have any other indication but those who came from Likud, if they see a significantly stronger Likud, they might go back home.
0: Do you think that the anti-Netanyahu right winger is a myth?
2: I think that it is much smaller, much more undecided than it is being portrayed in, in <laughs> India because... Uh, You see, if you say that there are cracks in the right and people are starting to move away from Netanyahu, it gives people some hope. And people are are looking for some hope, but uh, the numbers do not uh, indicate that there is a deep cleavage between the pro-Netanyahu and anti-Netanyahu components of the right-wing bloc.
0: But pollsters like Dahlia and you have been saying for years now that there's a majority of right-wing Israelis, that like 55% or 60% of Israelis are right-wing. But every time the public is asked, do you want Netanyahu to return to office and do you want the next Prime Minister to, to be Netanyahu, only 45% of Israelis say yes. At the, at the most, 45% of Israelis, sometimes even less than that. So there is a cleavage of 10 15% of right-wings who don't want to see Netanyahu remain Prime Minister.
2: I agree with you, but now the question is why. Why do they say that? Uh, one reason is what we call social desirability. When people were presented with these questions, it felt a bit embarrassing to say, yeah, I'm for Netanyahu, with, with his court case and some of his, uh, you know, statements, uh, and so on and so forth. Second, the guy is so many years. Uh, at the top and even people who have much appreciation for his achievements uh, would like to see some new blood and this doesn't mean that they are anti-Netanyahu pressing Another question being asked who would you like to see as the next prime minister of Israel and Netanyahu always comes on top. Uh, so so basically you're
0: <laughs> saying that there are a lot of shy bibistim out there people who will, in the end, vote for a pro Nintendo party, even though when they're asked, they want to see him. say, so actually, I'd prefer to see him leave. But, but they don't w- really
1: mean it. Well, let me, let me rephrase that as a question in shop talk. Tamar, in your experience, are Israelis shy about saying their views to pollsters?
2: It depends on what question, of course. I mean, uh, in the past, uh, we saw certain kind of shyness, or if you wish, fear on the side of the Israeli Arabs. They were afraid that if they will speak out, they might be, you know, approached by certain security agencies, Uh, even if it was just imaginary, still they feared, and they gave uh, some answers that were not really a reflection of the true views. The same, but for different reasons, was the case with the ultra Orthodox. Basically, I would say that Israelis uh, suffer from some kind of a survey fatigue. Now with the uh, internet online surveys, the situation is a bit different because they can just uh, decide not to jump in.
1: Well, that raises very interesting questions in a way about how much the technology helps us reach people who are willing to answer the surveys, but whether or not that might throw off the surveys because you have a self-selected panel of people who are interested in this stuff. How do you see that? Uh, Of
2: course, uh, I think that there is a very strong self-selection bias here, particularly as uh, uh, the people who are being interviewed online are being paid. I mean, very little money, but uh, the compensation does play a role. And certain people who are, for example, uh, technologically illiterate, they are not present in this uh, scene on the average, they are younger, they are more technologically oriented, they are more politically interested. Because if you call somebody's house and they pick up the phone not knowing that it's you and not Uncle Moshiko, they are being called by surprise online. So it is, uh, they might decide whether to start or not. It's a different kind of crowd, so uh, we should take this into
1: consideration. We could talk for a long time about these technical issues because they really do influence how we read the voters. But I want to get back to some of the data that you have you know, gathered through the Israel Voice Index, which I find is very indicative. And you mentioned something before about Israelis wanting hope. For Some of them want hope for change. Some of them hope for you know, Netanyahu to continue. But one of the data points I noticed was that you've been tracking how optimistic Israelis are about democratic governance over time. And looking at your time series from the February Voice Index, the last time there was a majority, more than 50 percent of Israelis who said they were optimistic about the future of democratic governance was way back in April 2019, And in every single survey since then, the number is below half who are optimistic about the future of democratic governance in Israel, only a minority. Why? What do you think lies behind that finding?
2: I think that uh, they see uh, reality as as they are uh, uh, very politicized. On the average, uh, uh, Israelis are very interested and engaged. And they look at the leaders, they look at the way that they are treating each other, uh, the way that they do not keep up the promises. For example, the Supreme Court is being almost run off by uh, uh, the government or certain leaders. They uh, hear very often in the uh, media and elsewhere that uh, the Israeli democracy is in the shambles and that. Uh, It is going down the drain and even if they are not really knowledgeable about how democracy should operate, they mostly hear negative assessments of the Israeli democratic system. And why am I saying that uh, they are being influenced by some experts and the leaders rather than their own investigation of the situation? Because in comparison to external assessments of the Israeli democracies, for example, by Freedom House, uh, the Economist Intelligence Unit, uh, Israel uh, scores uh, significantly higher in the outside than inside. And I would assume that the experts of such institutions are more objective, quote-unquote, if there is anything like being objective on such issues.
0: As a final question, how happy or perhaps unhappy you are that you're not working together with other pollsters who are more commercial uh, commercially employed this week on on a uh, exit poll for Tuesday night or are you quite happy to sit but as an academic by the side and watch the commercial pollsters work on on that.
1: I think what Angel's really trying to say is how much can we expect them to be
0: right on election night? No, I wanted Tamara to say if, she, if, she want, if she'd like to be there or she's quite happy to, to sit on the sidelines. Well, I want to know if we think they're going to be right.
2: I'll just say that I am very happy not to be there but it's not because i couldn't get such a job
0: No, i know you can't i know it's, it's, it's from choice so i'm interested in the in the fact that you decide not to sit there with because your colleagues
2: I think that this chase after uh, these predictions is doing some very bad service to israeli democracy because surveys which were meant originally to reflect reality are shaping reality and I don't want to take part in this kind of, I would say, uh, sport almost. That is involved with much money, and I think that this combination of politics, making prophecies, and money is politely not to my liking.
1: Well, we're glad I, that you've remained yes. above all of that for our
0: sake.
2: I, I'm not above about that. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Maybe in the you're fifth okay. election there will be the Tamar Herman exit poll. Who knows?
2: No, I don't think so. I mean, <laughs> I could have done it uh, in the past, and I, I don't want to. And, and one of the reasons is that you're being later on, and this is uh, for your questions, Dalia, uh, you're being uh, uh, actually crucified if you are wrong. So what makes you do it? It's money, money, money. Oh well,
1: in a rich
0: man's world. <laughs> interesting, interesting, they're all men. They are all men. All, all the big pollsters on media men.
1: I think that's a very interesting point, actually, that they're all men because you know the legendary pollster who predicted the elections correctly was Menachem. But nowadays they are all men, and we could get into a whole gender studies course here about how willing women
0: are to be publicly wrong. The next in in the fifth election. No,
2: no, no, no this is not the the right way to to. Uh it's not a gender issue I would say that it's a matter of how important it is to you to be on the, everybody's TV screens and then take the check. I believe that many of my male colleagues uh, also avoid this kind of uh, prophesizing.
0: Oh well, well okay. so we'll have to go to one of the real prophets but uh, thank you so much for your wisdom today Professor Tamar Herman.
1: Thank you for inviting me. Okay, so what time is it now? Uh, it's time for
0: oh, for your favorite, my part favorite part of the election, not the
1: favorite part of
0: the election.
1: Now, some episodes ago, I analyzed what really was about the most traumatic campaign I ever worked on. That was in 2001, in which we made this killer ad warning what would happen day after Ariel Sharon won the elections. Now we have the 2021 version, and it's stunning because this ad for Yeshatid is the identical format of the day after classic ad. It warns that Shas will get the finance ministry if Netanyahu wins, and Aryeh Derry will become finance minister. Itamar Ben-Gvir will become the justice minister. Bezalel Smotrich will be the interior minister. And it lists all the ways that they will drag Israel into the depths of theocracy, supremacy, destruction of the judiciary, and general perfidy. What's really sad about this is that There's no music appreciation at all in our final pre-election jingle analysis because that ad doesn't have any good music. It's like they're too frantic to even bother thinking about good musical production. I
0: expected you to come up with something with some incredible music for for the very last jingle.
1: Thank the lucky stars. I am not working on this campaign. And if I was, I would insist that all campaigns have good jingles. But they don't. And I think it's a mistake because music grabs the audiences as much as the message of an ad. And what's more disturbing is that I watched that 2001 clip 100 times when we tested it in focus groups. Anchel is reminding me that that actually was 20 years ago. And it feels like yesterday. The ad seemed scary at the time, but it also felt exaggerated for effect. When I watch the current ad that Yeshatid put together about the day after, there's a sinking feeling that it's not terribly far off. One more seat for Netanyahu's pro-Netanyahu block. And these are the kinds of choice ministerial seats that he will be using to bait his potential coalition partners starting on Wednesday after the election. Now, the I'm not campaigning for Yair your, your Lapid, I just want to say that, but I'm pointing out that this despondent production, which is low quality, says to me that even his own campaign isn't convinced it'll work.
0: I'm also concerned by the timing. Why did they wait so long to do this day-after campaign? I mean, this was, you would expect this to have been one of the main planks of uh, Yesh campaign after and to be banging on it two day after ago, day day after day for the last two months and i know from people in the campaign that they thought at the beginning that just saying israel needs a sane government which is their main slogan would be enough and people would understand from the word "sane" that they mean the insane government is Netanyahu with the ultra-orthodox and the bankers and smart which is etc from the polls, at least, that message has not has gone through, but not far enough, and they haven't amplified enough. But maybe in our next episode, in three days from now, on Thursday, when we'll be talking already of the results as we know them, who knows, maybe we'll be saying that Yair Lapid and his Bengali Mark Melman in Washington, D.C. are geniuses.
1: Maybe they had it all right. I will say at a campaign strategy level, often the panicky campaign, the urgent campaign, and the negative campaign is saved for the end. And as you say, maybe they thought, You lull everybody with this nice, warm, positive message of sanity, but at the end, you bang on the table with urgency to get those final voters out, and who knows if it'll work.
0: And with that message of urgency, I think it's a wrap. And that's it for episode 13, or election eve extra of Election Overdose. You can listen to us on harris.com. Where We will have over the next few days the latest breaking news about the election, the exit polls, the actual results as they come in, along, of course, with our exclusive features on Election Day from across Israel and the best analysis and comment there is. Thanks to our special guest, Professor Tamar Herman, our producer throughout this series, Jan Manevich, and, of course, my co-host, Dalia Shendlin. And thanks most of all to you, dear listener. For those of you in Israel who will be voting on Tuesday, vote early and vote wisely. Democracy, such as it is, is a rare and fragile thing not to be taken for granted, so treat it with care. We'll be back on Thursday with another episode of Election Overdose, our last episode, summing up the results, the thrills and spills, the speculations of the new coalitions. Until then, goodbye and good luck to us all.